sports are really important vehicles for relationships. We have purpose. We have a why. We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. Welcome to Sinai Temple. This is Rabbi Ara Sherman and Rabbi on the Sidelines. We are here to speak about the intersection of sports and faith. This week we are in for truly a treat. Two-time NBA All-Star, four-time NBA rebounding champion with the Chicago Bulls, Andre Drummond. We are at Sinai Temple, and, you know, we talk about how to make world peace. And the fact that we have a Yukon Husky talking to a guy from Syracuse, <laughs> there can be peace in this world, Andre Drummond. What do you think? You know what? I'm still a little hurt about those losses that we had against Syracuse, but we'll bring it in. <laughs> there we go. There we go. We're going to talk about a little about Yukon, Coach Calhoun, and how he had the uh, impact in your life as well. Awesome. But you have such an inspiring story because you have God-given talent, meaning height, meaning strength. There's some natural talent in terms of becoming a four-time rebounding champion, yeah. often compared to Dennis Rodman and the, uh, the Pistons of old. But how do you take natural given talent and size and actually actualize that potential on a basketball court? So funny story about me is I've been this high since my sophomore year of high school. I was six foot in the fifth grade and just shot up ever since then. So it was a little difficult for me earlier in my, my playing years of basketball. So start over again. He said from uh, when you were young, you're already six feet. Yeah, so in the fifth grade, I was six, six feet. And, you know, I was always big. And then growing up till my sophomore year of high school, I became 6'10", what I am now. Sophomore year of high school? Yeah, I was 6'10". And, you know, it was a little difficult for me growing up because I was a little uh, clumsy. I used to fall a lot. I was never coordinated until later on in my life. And, you know, when I got to high school, it's just something you worked for. Mm -hmm. And so reading about you and really the inspiration of your mom and but also your uncle, your uncle Phil, right. that he saw something in you that you could take this natural height, this clumsy natural height <laughs> and make something of it. Share about your relationship with Uncle Phil and how he saw the potential in you and what that looked like. Yeah, so my Uncle Phil gave me the basketball from the moment I was born. He said, you're going to the NBA. And he, he kept his word. You know, it's a guy that's been on me from day one. He made me work as hard as I work. Uh, just somebody who I really look up to as a, fa a father figure. And what did that look like on the day-to-day -day level? Was it, was, it? was it just playing middle school basketball? Was it AAU? When did you realize that you could do what your Uncle Phil wanted you to do? It didn't. It, it took me till I would say, like, freshman year of high school when I became the number one player in my state. And then that summer I became the number one player in the country. And it was kind of like a aha moment. Like, he finally gets it. Like, all the coordination started coming into play. And I started becoming the basketball player that he saw and that I always thought I was, too, and made it to where I am today. And so who was the best person you played with in high school or against in high school? Ooh, the best person I played against in high school. Who do you think? There's a lot of guys that we – who do you think? Uh Shabazz Muhammad was definitely one of the best guys I played against in high school. Played with Chris Dunn, Freddie Wilson, Tavon Allen, my guy Mike Bornazian, one of the best guys I played with in high school as well, too. <laughs> Shout out to Mike. <laughs> and let's take you now to your high school into your recruiting process. First, we're actually going to show a clip 
of something that you did in the Big East tournament, Madison okay. Square Garden. And before we do that, I want to ask you, what is it like to play, basically, I know we're talking in the chapel right here, right. but the mecca of college basketball, Madison Square Garden on the Big East stage? Man, playing, playing in the garden, is there's nothing like it. Uh, like, the moment you step on the floor, you feel like you have to be great. Like, you don't want to ever take that moment for granted to be on that historic court. And so we're going to see a highlight right now of what you threw down a jam in the Big East tournament. And I want you to go back to that moment, <laughs> try to remember it. And what was that like there? And what did it mean to your team? Let's hear that clip. I remember this play, too. Gitfai's been tremendous. You know, without Boat Right, Gitfai's got to step in. He's not gotten always consistent minutes for this UConn team. Here's Napier spotting a three. Drummond throws it down. Uh, Drummond throws it down. You're on the court. What does that adrenaline feel like when 20,000 people are standing because of what something that you did right there? You know, this is the, the fourth time we played Syracuse. And... <laughs> That game was just so intense. That was the first time we were ever up against them throughout the You saw, the by the way, 37-31 on there. That was not the final score. It was not the final score. We <laughs> lost. <laughs> we still ended up losing. But just to, just the energy of that game and just the rival we had throughout that year, and every game we played was close. And, you know, we always couldn't come out on top with the win. So that play, that specific play, I remember just really just uplifted our whole team. I did it in front of my mom like she was like four rows up, so I was looking at her when I made the dunk too. So it just was an incredible feeling. And so that was when you got to UConn literally before you went to the NBA. But let's go backtrack a few minutes right. to your recruiting process. Most people get recruited by all these major colleges. I'm assuming you get all the mail, I guess, in 2011, also email. Right. But that wasn't your story. You were going to go to a prep school and then go to college. Right. But instead, you're one of the first athletes around to commit to a college online on Twitter, everybody. That's so crazy on Twitter. So tell us about that piece. Then I want to ask you about something else. Okay. So my decision to go back to prep school is because of my best friend, Mike. Uh, he and I decided that after we graduated, we wanted to play one more year together. We never played in our high schools together. We always played AAU together. So he, myself and uh, our boy, Chris Dunn, who plays for Portland currently, uh, Portland Trailblazers, we're like, all right, we're going to go to Wilbraham and Munson together, and we'll all go our separate ways after that. Uh, Mike and I went to a fair, <laughs> and I think it was like 8 p.m. My mom gives me a phone call says, hey, I need you to come home. We're having a family meeting. That was your curfew then, right? 8 yeah, around that time, that was, my, that was my curfew time. So me and Mike, he takes me back home. I said, I'll see you tomorrow because school started in like a week, so we're getting ready to go to school. And I get to the house. And my whole family is just, like, lined up into my basement. And I'm looking around. I'm like, what's, what's going on? They're like, we want to talk to you about your future. I'm like, future in what? It's like in basketball. I was like, well, I start school next week. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? They're like, well, we don't think you should go back. So I said, why? It's like, we think it's time for you to take your game to the next level. It's time for you to play with better players. You've done everything you're supposed to do in high school. I've been Gator Player of the Year, Player of the Year. Uh, the MVP champion, I've I've done it all. So, uh, just I feel like this is better. Got it. Um, so you want to? You've done it all. You have nothing else to prove on the high school level, and so you commit to Twitter. And back then, as you, I saw videos, said it was hard to actually reach coaches back right. then. 
But obviously, when the world finds out, you want Coach Calhoun to also find out. And I believe he was on a camping trip. He was on so a camping trip. So he calls you, and what does Coach Calhoun say? Hall of Fame coach. Yeah, so when I finally got a hold of Coach Calhoun, he calls me. He says, are you serious? I said, yes. I just tweeted it to the whole world. I, this is not, this is <laughs> There's not no a, taking it back. Yeah, this is not a joke. I have to live with this. And he said, all right, well, I have one problem. So I said, what's that? He said, we have no more scholarships. I said, okay. I was like, well, I want to play for you. What do I, what do I have to do? He said, all right, give me till tomorrow morning. So I wait the morning. He calls back. He says, you know, there's a guy on our team we just gave our last scholarship to. Uh, we can take it from him and put him on financial aid and give you the scholarship if you really want to do that. And I thought to myself, I was, I was like, I'm not staying in school very long, so I don't really need a scholarship. I had faith that I was going to the NBA within a year or two anyway, so – I told him I didn't want it. Uh, the scholarship actually was DeAndre Daniels' scholarship, and uh, he's actually one of my best friends to this day still. So I gave him that scholarship. I went to school, paid financial aid, played the year out, and went to the draft. So you said a word very quietly that you had faith that you were going to get into NBA. We're going to see a clip right now of you telling that story just a couple of years ago that you literally gave somebody back a scholarship when the coach was going to give it away to that person because you had faith that something positive would happen. Right. So we're going to see that clip about what it means to be a walk-on at UConn <laughs> while being a Gatorade Player of the Year. And then we'll talk about that. Like, we have no more scholarships. We just gave, gave the last one away to DeAndre Daniels because he just, he just signed like two weeks before I made this decision. So yeah. DeAndre Daniels got the last scholarship. I was like, all right. He said, well, we could put you on financial aid. We pretty much, you know, you'll, you'll pay a decent amount, but you have to owe it back. Whenever yeah. you leave, we know you're going to the NBA. <laughs> So like the financial aid is not gonna kill you that much. So that's tough. I'm like, all right, cool, we can do that. He's like, or we can, you know, take DeAndre Daniels scholarship and make him pay. And I said no. I said I didn't want the scholarship. I was like, not give. Let him have it. I was like, I don't want that. I was like, I'll take. I'll take the loan to my mom. I was like, I'm going. Like I told her to her face. I was like, I'm going to the NBA. So. Just suck it up for a year, <laughs> or however long I'm here. Yeah. I was like, just take the loan. I know it's gonna put us in a in a tough situation. Um, solid. We're gonna be fine. So, long story short, you know, I go up to campus. I get red flag. You get red flag because the NCAA is like, how is this guy a walk on or the right. Gatorade Player of the Year? So talk about that faith that you knew inside before you even stepped on the court of Gamble Pavilion in Stores, Connecticut. If you've never been there. <laughs> go just not when they're playing Syracuse because it's often a difficult environment to play. It is. And uh, how did you have that faith that you were already taking that next level after just a couple of months on the college right. campus? So the, the faith really built with uh, my grandma. My grandma who's really brought me to, to the faith that I am now. Wow. And she's really taught me a whole lot about just believing in myself and just believing in God and, you know, just letting things happen the way they're supposed to. And every year before I went to school, we would do a prayer together just to just bless me for the year and just give me the faith and the knowledge I need to make it through the year. And with this moment when I we were all together, you know, we prayed about it and we decided this is what was best. That's an amazing story right there, that before each year your grandmother would pray that whatever the outcome would be, it would be maybe not for the best, but the faith actually to go through whatever experience you were going to go exactly. through as well. And so this person that was going to get their scholarship taken away now becomes your best friend. Right. Um, what was the gratitude on his end? And did he know that I don't think he, he knew. Was, he didn't know. I don't think he knew. I mean, he probably knows now. I told this story publicly a few times <laughs> now, but 
I never used to tell this story like publicly to people. I'll tell it like in passing, but never, you know, for the media. So I'm sure he'll see this eventually and he'll call me. Well, it's the first time that the rabbi's been called the media. So that's a lot of good faith there, Andre. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's go to now the journey to Detroit. Because to be drafted in the NBA is one thing, right? right? It's everybody's dream. Um, many kids who are 13 years old sit in my office right here when they become a rite of passage. And I say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say, I want to be an NBA player. Love it. Not everybody. Yeah, they love it too <laughs> until their parents say, go get a job. But they have faith that whatever they do, they can actually do good at. You get to the NBA draft, you're the number ninth pick. In just a second, we're going to watch David Stern, the commissioner of NBA, call your name, and you slide right into the Detroit Pistons. So let's watch your pick in the NBA draft um, in 2012. The ninth pick in the 2012 NBA draft. The Detroit Pistons select... What does that feel like when David Stern calls your name and you are now a professional athlete? You know, every time I watch that video, I get emotional because I like I, I remember the feeling every single time I watch it. It just it was that moment where I knew my life was about to change forever. And I knew for my family it was such a big deal, you know, to make it this far could not. I don't think anybody from where I'm from has made it as far as I have even to this day. So to be able to do that for my city, do that for my family, it's all just like in a rushing feeling of emotions. And leading up to that point, right, you don't have a choice where you go. You obviously work out with different teams, and there was a possibility that you might have been in the first eight picks, but you right. slide right into there. When you now realize that you're a Detroit Piston, what is your role in that organization as they're trying to win championships again? It was... It was definitely different. When I got to Detroit, they were a team that was uh, rebuilding. Rebuilding their team. They're trying to become young again, so they're getting rid of a lot of their old guys. And when I came in, I just had a mindset that I wanted to be the best player I could be. I didn't want to be a statistic a statistic where I, you know, only made it through the first two or three years. So We've heard of Darko, right? Huh? We've heard of Darko. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not him. He's not sitting at this chair. No. <laughs> but, yeah, just – True, true, true faith, and it's a blessing to be where I am today and be able to do what I do. So how do you find the role of that you're going to play on that team, right? So there's a lot of been written about you that you're a traditional center in a league that doesn't have those anymore. Right. Most centers who are seven feet tall are shooting three-pointers and dribbling up the court. But you're in the paint, battling, four-time NBA rebounding champion. Rebounding is not a natural thing. You have to follow that ball and find it. Right. Is that a natural skill? Did you work at the rebounding? What are the three or two um, magical gifts that you need right. to grab that ball outside of 10 people on that court? <laughs> so it's funny. The, the rebounding knack came at a really young age, but I didn't know something I was good at until I got to the NBA. 
Um, when I got to the NBA, my I called my high school coach. I said, Coach, what do I need to do to stay? Like, I'm, I'm here. Like, what do I have to do to stay? He's like, well, you need to find a part of your game and master it. Be the best at that thing. So we're going through the list of stuff. I'm like, I'm playing on a team who is really trying to rebuild right now. You know, who's who do we have on our team? So I'm looking on our roster. We got guys who shooters already. We have guys who are on the wing. And, I, and that, when I was younger, I played on the wing. I was a small forward. So it was a little tricky for me, too. So when I when I really got to it, it was, became blocking shots, rebounding, and being good on defense with my hands. And I chose rebounding. I was like, rebounding is not pretty. I don't see guys going out there for, you know, 20 or 15 rebounds every night. You know, everybody wants 30 points. I was like, what about the guy that's cleaning up the mess? So I I stuck with that, and I made it a goal of mine to – get no less than 20 rebounds every night and you've basically almost done that (laughs) double doubles and double doubles and more double doubles um but what is the key to actually doing that is a battle down there who's the who's the toughest guy to grab a rebound over right now steven adams steven adams Adams. yeah and so what do you do to grab a rebound over him speed speed yeah i'm a lot faster than him so (laughs) i use my speed that steven adams speed speed but no he's he's strong man i I hate i hate playing against him because he's such a he's such a a great competitor too i played against him in high school too uh he's just an awesome guy an awesome player and he's very fun to play against him because he it's weird like we have conversations like while we're battling in the game like (laughs) like i'll ask him how he's doing like how you doing man you look good man you're playing great and things like that, but we're like... But I'm going to grab that ball from you right now. Yeah, like we're, we're just wrestling for the rebound, so it's always fun playing against him. And what would be the key for a player coming in to grab a rebound over Andre Drummond? A little self-reflection. You got you to want it more. You got to want it more. That's, uh, that's really how I got to be where I am. I wanted it more. And actually, there's a difference between being successful, which you already have proved everybody you're successful, and staying successful. Right. And so how do you now at... 29 years old, which is still a decade younger than me, <laughs> stay successful in the league that is so young? The league is changing each and every year. And I've always told a lot of my friends, I've told anybody I'm around, like, oh, man, you're still playing the same way. You know, you're traditional big. You know, how are you going to last? I said, I keep up with the times. I mean, I don't have to shoot threes or dribble the ball that much. Like, I, I'm able to stop the guys that do it. That's why I'm still here. Mm-hmm. And I still am able to go out there and grab 15 to 20 rebounds a night, which teams don't have. Right. And not only am I doing that, I'm giving you 17 points on top of that. So, you know, how can I not stay around? And I think it's an important moment of faith as well, what you talked about, finding something that others don't do. Right. Because it's so easy. I just read a book by John Wooden and Andy Hill, who's uh, be quick, but don't hurry. Right. (laughs) You talked about speed. But if you go too fast, you just fall over. You say when you were younger, you were clumsy. Right. But if you're quick and you don't hurry, that is when you sort of find that perfect balance right there. Absolutely. And so the NBA is also, it's not just about what you do on the court, but as important for this country, sports is a unifier of people, of different people. And what you've done tremendously is give off the court as well. We're going to see a clip of what you did and you're with the Cleveland Cavaliers during Thanksgiving and we'll talk about how you got involved with that philanthropic effort that it's not just about taking care of your family, but it's about taking care of our community.
got the line down the street. This man is handing out Thanksgiving meals and people can't get enough. <laughs> How do you decide, say, you know what, I'm going to wake up on Thanksgiving morning, I'm going to feed the homeless, I'm going to feed the hungry, because what I do on the court, I'm taking care of myself, but there are people out there that are in much more need of me. How do you get to that point where you're literally helping others outside? You know, it's something, I, it's something I've done early in my career. Uh, I've never had anybody of, like, my stature come where I'm from and give back anything, really, besides Ray Allen, and he's not even from... Connecticut, if I'm not mistaken. So talk about Ray Allen for a second. Why do you say that, and what did that look like? Uh, you know, Ray is a guy that will come back to Connecticut. Obviously, he went to UConn. Yes. Ray Rip, you know, those guys will come back and do camps at UConn. I got a chance to play and be in front of those guys too. So it was cool to have the opportunity. But back to to, to the community, I think it's something that a lot of guys are starting to get back into now because we have the they look up to us. These people look up to us. They get a chance to see us on TV and just for us to give an hour or two hours of our time to help somebody else that's in need, it takes nothing out of your day. And so when you see that video of, deliver, of giving out turkeys on Thanksgiving, knowing that those people will not go home hungry that night, how does it make you feel and how is that contagious? How does that help others also be in that giving spirit? I think to me it's like a, it's like a regular day because I don't plan for that stuff, nor do I have to think about it. It's something that I'm just selfless about and I'm willing to, to do, knowing that I can help somebody else that needs it. And you have a huge platform, not just on Twitter and Instagram, but every single night on the court, everywhere. Especially with social issues today in terms of the George Floyd riots and when you guys were in the bubble in Orlando. How do you see the NBA as a platform to help the world and society, not just giving out turkeys, but making a difference? Do you say, you know what, I'm a basketball player today, I'm going to do that another day? Or do you say, no, we can combine these things to give people things to think about when they turn off the TV. I think that I think the NBA is one of the best leagues in the world when it comes to social issues. We all find a way to come together and make it one common message. It's not six or seven different guys giving different messages. And we have a really good system. We come together. Whenever something happens, we all have a committee where we come together and we discuss our how what is our message. So what is that committee? Who's on that? How does it's that work? the MBPA and the Players Association. And you're in the MBPA? Yeah. And what does that look like if you're allowed to share? Uh, uh, just a group of guys that talk about different issues and how we want to resolve them. Hmm. And like stuff, you could, as simple as like the referees, like stuff that we want to see the refs do different or game times, how we came up with the playing tournament. We did that together too. Oh, that's interesting. So, and social issues then, when that comes up, how does right. that work? Like when you had racial equality on your jerseys, every right. single team, is that something from the MBPA? No, that's from that's from the Players Association. Wow. And, um, you know, Chris Paul is the, is the head of the snake and he's incredible at what he does. Uh, you know, he's he's been our leader for as long as I can remember, probably as long as I've been playing. Uh-huh. So, you know, anything he says, we kind of just follow suit. And what is something that you felt passionate about these last couple of years that you said, you know what, I'm going to make a difference outside my double-doubles, outside giving the turkeys that I stand for, that I can make a difference? You know, I do a really good job of not over-exercising my platform because at the end of the day, people do have their own opinions. And my opinion is my opinion, and it's not meant for everybody to take it and accept it. So I try not to use my own opinions i try to use the same common opinion that we all come up with uh-huh. and keep it at that because i don't want to ever get lost in that that realm of something where i'm fighting a battle that doesn't need to be fought interesting 
So when we talk about faith in the NBA, there like and I've spoken to other NBA players and broadcasters that I was told, right? Because I'm in the stands and you're on the court. <laughs> that before the game, there actually is chapel available to players teams, on yeah. both teams coming together. Uh, have you ever taken part in that? And what does that look like? And what's the purpose of that? Yeah, I take I take part in chapel and and like you said, it's just the both teams come together and we just share one common message. At the end of the day, we are all brothers, despite us playing for opposing teams, and we just, you know, hold our hand in prayer and go out there and play to the best of our ability. It's interesting when we talk about prayer and faith in sports because often, say you have a triple-double, and you go on with Ernie Johnson after, and you say, I thank God for this. But the question is, is Stephen Adams saying, I thank God for Andre Drummond actually beating me? It doesn't usually happen that way. <laughs> no. So it's more of the idea of gratitude than thanking God for the actual thing that, that – um, that actually happens. Have you seen other moments of faith in the NBA, either in the huddle, in the locker room, that have brought people together in difficult times, or actually even good times as well? Yeah, I think I think Milwaukee does something really cool after all of their games, where when win or lose, they come to the middle of the floor as a team and they say a prayer, and I think they they invite the other team as well too. I actually went into one of their prayers one time too, and I thought it was really really cool that they do that to show their faith despite winning or losing. So the Bucks do that after every game? Yeah. Wow, with Andre Drummond in the middle, even though we're in different jersey. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever we play there, I go into their huddles. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, we are sitting in Los Angeles, so I do have to ask about your Laker experience. How was that? Um, obviously playing with uh, LeBron James and uh, in this market as opposed right. to, you know, in a market like Detroit. You know, playing in one of the biggest markets in NBA history, it was crazy for me because it's always been a dream to play in, like, the big arenas, you know, Miami, New York, Lakers, uh, Golden State. I mean, those big market cities. And to be able to play here in the purple and gold, it's just another feeling because, you know, Kobe Bryant wore this jersey, Shaq wore this jersey, Kareem, you know, James Worthy. You go down the list of guys of incredible players that have stepped foot on that floor and share that locker room that we're in. You know, it's historic. And for me, I never took it for granted. I enjoyed every moment of wearing that jersey. Uh, sad it didn't go the way we wanted it to. Uh, I think if we had more time together, I thought I think things would have been great. But uh, it's just not the way, you know, things fell for us. So you were a two-time NBA All-Star, and it wasn't just the fans that were voting for you, but uh, Charles Barkley, Shaquille O'Neal, Kenny Smith, Ernie Johnson, who was a guest on here, Rabbi on the Sidelines. They showed this video that we're going to see on Inside the NBA on TNT that I absolutely love. And tell us how this came about and perhaps how it impacted your uh, all-star appearances. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. This boy is up to something. He just spent like two or three weeks out of the country. This boy is up to something. He just not just laughing. He don't have to call he hit his hands like Usher. Woo. He just found his tempo like he's DJ Mustard. Woo. He hit that gin nobly with his left hand like woo. He's searching for answers. I do not know nothing. Woo. I see him tweaking. They know something's coming. Woo. Drumming, drumming, drumming. I still don't know how to do something. Drumming, drumming, drumming. What was you expecting? Woo. D-town, D-town. Michael Jordan just said. Text him. Woo. That's so crazy. <laughs> so right after that, Charles Barkley says, there's no need for the fans to vote. It's obvious that you're an NBA All-Star. How did that come about? You know what? Detroit has a very good social media team. And when they showed me this video, they showed it to me like the second it aired, though, so I didn't even get to approve it. I just, <laughs> they're like, this is what we're using for your all-star voting. 
And when I watched it, I said, how? How did Obama use all of these words? And you guys found pieces of it. to So that really happened. I mean, I don't think he said it in those texts. Right, right, right. Yeah, but those are his words that they're using and like bringing them together. It's it's so creative. And did the president reach out to you or does he know about that uh, that video? Um, I think he does. I think he does. Um, So Stan Van Gundy, who was your coach in uh, Detroit, he said consistency changes everything. What does consistency mean in such a long season and a long NBA career? I think consistency and a long NBA career is to sustain and be here as long as you can be. And for me, just staying to what works, being able to adapt, being able to adjust to new situations, um, you know, guys that get traded, you know, being able to adjust fast and being able to come and be ready to play uh, in terms of a long season of being consistent, uh, sticking to your routine. Right. Uh despite whatever's going on, whatever's going on mentally, just sticking to what you know is going to get you to be the best version of you. It's actually interesting you say that because faith has the same exact aspects. Often people come into this room, literally this room, and they say, they use a baseball analogy, but I'll use a basketball analogy. They say, I came in here for one time, right, during my holiday, and it wasn't a slam dunk experience, and I walked out and I was done. And I try to explain in sports language, it's actually consistency. Did you go? Did you try for a layup? Did you shoot your free throws? Right. Because consistency only happens once. Actually, as John Wooden said, not practice makes perfect, but perfect practice, practice. makes perfect. What do you think about John Wooden's words of perfect practice makes perfect? I don't think you could have said that any better. Uh, you pra- you practice perfection, you get perfection. I mean, nobody's perfect, but you still want to be the best you can be and try to maximize and use the best you can at all times. And so what do you see uh, during this year, Chicago Bulls? What are you excited about uh, in this upcoming year? You know, I'm really looking forward to playing with this team. They're a very young team. They're a team that's hungry and ready to make some noise right now. So for myself to be able to be still athletic and be able to be mobile with this young team, I think it's going to be very good for us. And what's the difference between being that rookie on Detroit when you were looking up to all those players and now being the veteran where uh, I believe it was Caruso, who's really excited to play with you and obviously had a chance to play out here, um, to be that veteran, both um, on the court, but also in the locker room. Yeah, just being a great locker room guy to the younger guys on the team and making sure they, making sure I give them the blueprint. What I wasn't taught, I want to be able to teach them at at a young age in their career to show them the best way to you know, stick and last. And that's the biggest thing and the biggest goal in anybody's career is how can you last the longest. And so I just want to go back to UConn one more time because Syracuse, <laughs> UConn, Coach Calhoun, what is something you only had a short time with him, but what's something that you learned from a Hall of Fame coach like him and four times against Syracuse, what's something that you learned from a guy like Coach Beheim? Um, From Jim Calhoun, what I've learned from him, that words are just words because he used to let us have it verbally. <laughs> I love you, Coach. <laughs> um, he, he definitely gave me a tougher shell, that's for sure. A tougher shell, uh, being able to take heat when it comes, don't crumble under pressure. You know, he makes diamonds out of nothing. He's an wow. incredible coach, one of the best coaches I've played for. Uh, and I thank him for everything he's done for me. And what about from somebody like a Coach Beheim, a Hall of Famer on the other side who's basically yeah. done the same thing as well? You know, Jim, I've got a chance to be around him uh, with USA Basketball. Right. So just his basketball mind and what he knows about the game and the ins and outs, 
uh, probably the best zone I've ever seen to this day still. I don't think I've ever seen anybody perfect the 2-3 zone the way he has. Uh, he's just an incredible coach, and, you know, I'm happy for what he has going on. <laughs> and so last but not least, um, what is the message that you think the NBA has to give, not just young people, but actually the American audience? When we didn't have basketball during COVID, it's a very unique time that you played in a professional sports league when there were no sports, right? Right. You had to take care of your body and your soul and your emotional health while not having your profession existing. Sports brought back this country. Sports brought back people in their faith. What did sports coming back mean to this country, and what will the NBA mean this coming year as people begin to gather again? Yeah, so being able to play during the pandemic was kind of crazy for us because it felt like we were playing a scrimmage every night because right. there was no fans in the arena. All we had was the staff, and we just found ways to make it the best. I think I think the, the respected arenas did a really good job of making it feel like home games for for the team and making it as fun as possible despite a really rough time. And now that things are starting to become a little bit more normal now, you start seeing more and more people come out, uh, going to all the sporting events, concerts, and all those things are starting to feel a little bit normal. So for me, I'm happy about that because – it's starting to feel like life is getting back to what we used to know. We are honored that Andre Jumman, two-time NBA All-Star, four-time NBA rebounding champion, friend of Rabbi on the Sidelines and Sinai Temple, has joined us here, connecting intersection of sports and faith. We're excited to follow Andre's uh, career in Chicago and when he comes out here playing in the Staples, or sorry, Crypto.com crypto, arena crypto, yes. uh, against the Lakers and Clippers. We'll visit him and hopefully he'll visit us at Sinai Temple. So great to have you. Rabbi on the sidelines. Have a great week. Hi guys.